out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Well, names are important, aren't they? Names have meaning. So my first name, Jacob, means deceiver. Not the greatest name for a pastor, but God had grace on the Jacob of the Bible. I'm trusting he has grace on me as well. You probably have significance attached to your name, too, like I do. I, perhaps you share a name with someone else in your family tree, and that means a lot to you. Most likely, your last name has a lot of significance. It signifies who you belong with, who you belong to, either your parents or your spouse. So my last name, Baum, was not a common one in the area I grew up in. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have a big meat packaging plant a few miles from my home that was run by a Baum family, so I had to respond no when I was asked if I was related. But the, the name Baum, even though there are no bombs around me, they're scattered all over the world, quite literally, is, is special to me. It reminds me of my Jewish-German grandfather who immigrated from Germany at the beginning of World War II, who saw Adolf Hitler in the flesh. If you want to ask me more about that, I, it's a story I love to tell. Our names are precious to us. They signify something. They mean something great to us. And the same is true, only infinitely more so, for God. The name of God signifies who he is like and who he is and what he is like. And so as his people, we are not to take his name lightly. So on and off for the past year or so, we've been working our way through this book of Exodus, the account of God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt about 3,500 years ago. God, or his personal name, Yahweh, in this book, has delivered his people, not just to send them out to freedom, but to make them his own. They have switched masters. They have traded allegiances from one God-king, Pharaoh, to the true God-king, Yahweh. And now, as their God, Yahweh enters into covenant with them by giving them his law. Beginning here in chapter 20 with the famous ten words or ten commandments. Daniel just read for us the first three of those commandments, and this morning we come especially to consider that third one in verse 7 of Exodus 20. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
And before we dig in, let me just remind us how we should approach these commandments as Christians. We talked about this last week, but I think we're going to have to talk about it every week so that we remember how to accurately, faithfully think through these commandments. See, we come to these Ten Commandments on the other side of the cross. That means that what this law looked ahead to, we look back on because Jesus has come. And Jesus has come to live the perfect life of obedience to this law. He has fulfilled it for us. That's that's how he saves us. He doesn't save us by overlooking our law breaking. No, God saves us by sending Jesus to keep the law for us and then give us the status that he has as perfect law keeper. We are not saved by God lowering his standards, but by elevating us to his standards. So we come to this law not under the old covenant, the covenant made with Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai. We come under the new covenant, the covenant where we are, ha- we are seen to have the law written on our hearts, our sin having been washed away by the blood of Christ. That's the single most important thing to remember as we come to these commandments. But if we only thought about those commandments that way, even though that's the primary way we need to think about them, we would kind of look at them with no sort of obligation to learn from them. But that's not true. We come to this law also to see what our God is like. The law perfectly illustrates for us the character of God. So the law is bad news for sinners. But it's not bad. The law is is the tool in which we see the perfect holiness of the God who has saved us. It's, It's a perfect law because it images a perfect God. So we get to know God better by studying and considering his law here. And finally, we don't come to this law as sort of distant observers surveying an ancient document. No, we come to submit our lives to the character of God revealed here. So in Christ, we come not condemned by this law, not under this law. We come already accepted by the one who kept it perfectly, but as accepted ones, we come to learn from it, to submit to it, to grow in in using this law to actually grow in holiness. This law is a guide to us in how as Christians to please God with the principles here. All right, so with those things in mind, let's see three points from this verse, this commandment. First, the name. Second, the command. And third, the reason. So first, the name. So back in chapter 3 of Exodus, we saw God reveal himself to Moses and send him back to Egypt to rescue his people. And do you remember how God responded to Moses when Moses said, who should I say sent me? He says, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. The Lord, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. That name Lord in all caps in your English English translations is the Hebrew name Yahweh. It's the personal name for the God of Israel. And that name is intimately connected to the the idea of I am. 
So we considered this back in, in January, the first Sunday in January, when we considered that part of Exodus chapter 3. So if you have want to get refreshed on that, you can look back on that on the, on the website. But for now, for today, suffice it to say that God's name is just huge, that it blows up our categories, that it's beyond comprehension, that it shows him to be the Lord, Yahweh, I am who I am. In his name, Yahweh reveals himself to be the utter source of life, the only self-existent one, the one who had no beginning and will have no end. And, and as we consider his acts of salvation through Exodus, we see that Yahweh, that the meaning of Yahweh begins to also include his faithfulness to his promises to save. So, for example, Exodus chapter 6, the Lord says, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God's promises, God's name are to be counted on. His word is sure. He will have mercy on his people because his name is so much more than just a mere title. His name reveals himself. He's the fire of the burning bush and what that symbolizes, this sort of ever-burning, self-fueling, self-sustaining, holy one. And that holy one is the one who will fulfill his promises. I was thinking through God's name again after... 12 months or 11 months since we studied it last time in chapter 3, and I still, my brain still hurt. There is so much depth to the name of Yahweh that we could spend hours and hours thinking about this morning and still feel like we just scratched the surface. But I mean, what else should we expect? If Yahweh's name is not just his mere name, but his essence, his, who he is, this is the character of God, then why shouldn't our brains be blown up? Why shouldn't we per be perplexed and flabbergasted? This is our creator, God. So if that's his name, then I don't think it should be any surprise that here in the third commandment, we read that we must revere his name. You shall not take the name of the Lord Yahweh, your God, in vain, Israel. The late scholar Alec Mateer writes, The Lord's name is shorthand for all that he has revealed about himself. I am who I am is like an ample container into which the great truths revealed by Moses and throughout the Exodus have been packed. The Holy One, the God of the Covenant, the Redeemer, Deliverer, Judge, the caring God of daily providence, the God of reconciliation who brings his people to himself. Do you see how meaningful and weighty the name Yahweh is for his delivered people? It means he is this one true God who will not fail in his plan to save. Dear church, the name of our Lord is not meant just to give us warm fuzzies. It's not meant to be spoken of off the cuff. It's a name to adore, to worship, to revere. 
this has been what the first two commandments have been all about, right? So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, shows Israel whom they must worship. And the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, shows Israel that that God who they worship, that God alone, he actually decides how they should worship him. And part of that command in how to worship him is to keep his name holy. The name of the God of Sinai. The name of the Holy One who commands his people to stay back lest they're consumed. This is the name of the God who has heard their cry and has provided a way for them to be in relationship with him through covenant. The God who will keep his promises. The God who is both transcendent and imminent, who is both distant and near. Philip Ryken says, God's true name is chosen and revealed by God himself. We do not tell God who he is, he tells us. God has his own naming rights, and this is a sign of his sovereign authority. God's name comes before all other names. So if that's the name of Yahweh, what is the command here then? The second point, what, what is the command? Well, Yahweh commands his delivered people in verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord Yahweh, your God, in vain. This means that as they use the Lord's name, they must not treat it in emptiness. That word vain has the idea of emptiness. God's people must speak his name in all its weighty meaning. They must speak his name as holy. I mean, his, his people are to be holy in covenant with him. And so as part of that holy people, they must treat his name as holy. So what would that look like? We can think about the negative ways that we see throughout the Old Testament. There are a number of things we could point to, but two, one author points out two of them. Uh, one includes things like prophets speaking in the name of Yahweh, lies, false prophecies. Uh, another one would be by God's people swearing falsely by his name. We see those two things come up throughout the first five books of the Bible. Instead, God's people, in covenant with him, must hold his name high because belonging to Yahweh will mean worshiping him alone, honoring him alone as holy. And to do that, they must not misuse his name because like we just said earlier, the name of Yahweh is more than just a title. Misusing the name Yahweh is more than just misusing the name or his title. It's misusing his very character. The character his name reveals one author says, any misuse of his name is a personal insult to God. Now, often in, uh, in church circles, the first thing we think about when we hear this commandment is profanity and cursing, right? I think that's probably true for most of us. And that's a good place to begin. So we're going to begin there. So, so when we use God's name as slang, or as an exclamation when we're angry or frustrated, we use this authoritative name of the God of the universe to punctuate our anger. We take this wonderful name beyond all comprehension and we use it as a vehicle for sin. 
oftentimes we can use God's name in connection with the idea of damnation or judgment, showing clearly how we play God, seeking to use God's damnation to bring down on those we dislike and hate. This misuse of God's name in everyday conversation breaks the third commandment. And it's not just about what words are okay or not okay. It's about abusing the self-revealed character of the God of the universe. How dare we use his name, the name of the king, to prop up our own feeble kingdoms? We must repent. But this commandment has to do with more, I think, than just cursing. One scholar says this commandment covers everything from blasphemy, which is kind of the worst thing you can think of, all the way to, listen to this, all the way to simply misrepresenting God's nature in conversation. So while the concept of cursing is involved here, it might be the most readily thing that we need to deal with, it's really the first among so many things we must consider in this command. Yahweh is commanding his people not to take his name in a way that lies about who he truly is. So, dear church, we can't come to this commandment and sort of just like breathe a sigh of relief because we don't cuss very much. Now, we must consider all the ways we talk about and even represent our God. Ligon Duncan says, if we claim to be Christians and then live as if we are not, we take God's name in vain. Well, that broadens the commandment, doesn't it? Do you see how that works? If you take this commandment and you think about it and you apply it to your life, you will see that it goes deeper than just mere profanity. Ultimately, it points us to our hearts from which our words come. It points us to how we live. Christian, are you an accurate voice for the character of God? Do you represent him faithfully? I think as you apply this, and I'd encourage you to think about it this coming week, you will see more and more, like I have this past week, how utterly we all fail to keep this. Constantly failing to honor the name of the Lord. Not just in our words, but in our bearing and in our lifestyle. So consider, how might you hold the name of your God without gravity, without reverence? God commands us to take his name in holiness, not in vanity, not in emptiness. So we have failed, but if we have failed, what are we to do? Thirdly and finally, let's see the reason for this commandment. The reason for this commandment. And we see that there in verse 7 at the end. So Yahweh tells his rescued people, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why? For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. There's a reason, folks. If you take the name of the Lord in vain, the God over all will find you guilty. 
The ultimate judge will declare you guilty. He is the ultimate judge. He is the one who has the final say on who gets the verdict of guilty and who gets the verdict of not guilty. And that's why, as an aside, that's why it's so ironic that we'll take his name and, and add it to damnation to damn someone else with his power. Because in doing so, we sort of co-opt the name of the true judge and use it in our own personal judgments to justify how we damn others. How sinful and rebellious is that? But if you don't do that, if you're like, yeah, I can't remember the last time I used a word like that, I think this can cut even deeper for all of us. Think about it. Have you ever used the character of God to win a fight with your spouse? Have you ever used your Bible knowledge of God to impress and promote yourself rather than God? Have you ever used the name or character of God to defend your sin or deflect it to someone else. I think I have done all three of those things. Church, we are guilty. What are we to do? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I wonder what you do with guilt, with things you've done wrong in your past. So, I want to be careful here. Some guilt is unmerited guilt. For example, if you have been abused in the past and you have guilt on you, that is guilt you should not bear. Please come and talk to an elder of the church so we can help you pray through that and be freed from that. But all of us has, have guilt that we have incurred by the way we have treated others, by things we have done. And that guilt is really sticky, isn't it? You try to shrug it off and get out from under its weight, and it just won't go away. I mean, we're really good at trying to distance ourselves from, from other bad things in our past, things we try to forget, like hurt feelings, try to brush that away, painful breakups, you know, the pain goes away with time, bad memories. But the guilt that we incur through those things just holds on so tightly, doesn't it? We try to cover it up, we try to explain it away, but we can't. Maybe you've heard the advice that you just need to forgive yourself. That that's the way you'll be freed from guilt. But that just assumes you're the offended party. That you are the one who has the right to forgive and to withhold forgiveness. And that's just not true. God is the ultimate offended party in your sin. So ultimately, God is the only one who can fully and finally forgive you. So question then. What in the world are we to do with our guilt if the only one who can truly forgive us of our guilt is the one we've abused the most? It's a good question. We should feel the weight of this question this morning because it has eternal consequences. God takes his name seriously. He takes the worship of his name seriously, and he must, for he is God. We've rebelled against him. We have, like we saw last week, gone after other gods. We have spoken his name in disregard and dishonor. We have used it in profanity and anger. We are guilty. 
And our summons here in the end of verse 7 is not to just some small, no-name claims court. This is a summons to the high court of the king of the universe. What are we done? What are we to do? We're done for. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. How can we be saved? One author says that the Lord's name is intensely precious to him. It is he who notes its misuse and who matches the punishment to the crime in each and every case. Church, what are we to do? Enter Jesus. Enter the one who obeyed the third commandment to perfection. Enter the one who in John 17 said he had manifested God's name to the people. Enter the one who, like we read earlier in Matthew 6, taught his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Enter Jesus who not only perfectly worshipped his Father's name, but modeled for us how to worship it as well. Enter Jesus, who, was, who never blasphemed. Enter Jesus, who never emptied God's name of its holiness. Enter Jesus, whose life and words never told one single lie about the character of God. Enter Jesus on the cross. For God, the judge switches his verdicts. When Jesus was killed, God, the judge, declared him guilty and you and me, Christian, guiltless. We, the true guilty party, became God's beloved sons and daughters, and Jesus, the true perfect son, became God's sin-bearing enemy. The gospel is all about flipping the tables on Satan, about this incredible change of events. Church, on the cross, Jesus took, if you're a Christian, he took every single way you have taken the Lord's name in vain. Every foul-mouthed exclamation, every disrespectful remark, every way you have lived in a way that doesn't do justice to your name as a Christian, one who is in Christ. On the cross, the holy fire of Sinai consumed not you and me, the sinner, but the very Son of God, the sinless, so we could be forgiven, so that the judge of the universe could bring his gavel hammering down and say, the verdict is in, you are not guilty. And in three days, Jesus rose again. Defeating our sin and proving our guilt was finally and fully paid. And our sin wiped away. If you're not a Christian, how will you deal with your guilt? Your guilt needs to rest somewhere. Someone needs to bear your guilt. Will it be you or will it be Christ? Humble yourself. Turn and trust in Christ and be saved. A few questions about that. There is nothing we'd rather do with our afternoon than talk to you about it. In church, Christian brothers and sisters, in the freedom Christ has given us, in this guiltless state in which we find ourselves by his grace, we now have been given hearts that are eager however weak, however feeble, that are eager to honor this name. 
I mean, this is the Lord who has called us and, and saved us and brought us to himself, calling us his own people. And now through his son, we come before him to bring him praise that can truly honor him. Something that was impossible before. Think about it. What a privilege that is. What a privilege that we have as believers in Christ to speak words that represent our king. Christian, you have words. You have the ability to speak words of heavy truth about your creator. What an awesome privilege. What a scary privilege. What a heavy task. So we must consider how then in Christ can we more fully obey this commandment this week through what our Christ has done for us? Three questions to consider then as we close. Three ways that we might be able to work on this and to more fully obey this this week. First, do you make time to undistractedly worship the Lord? To consider his name and the character that it reveals during your day and your week? We have busy schedules. Some of us are out of the house before daylight and back after the sun sets. We have work commitments. We have family commitments. But if this is the true nature of the name and the character of the God we worship, then we must hold his name with with sort of weighty privilege and worship him with honor and sobriety. It doesn't mean that it's it's flippant and irreverent to just, you know, shoot off flare prayers when we need help. That honors God. But I think it does mean that we need to think carefully about time we spend devoted to his word and to him. Do you make time to be with God? To meditate on his love for you? To sort of nourish your soul in Christ? Second, Does your life speak the truth about God? Are you a faithful picture of what he's really like to those around you? I specifically thought of you parents. Parents, do your children see in you reflections of the character of God? Do you bear the name of God well in your home? Do they see compassion and grace from you that shows them what Jesus is like? Do they say, see you responding to God in repentance for sin? Do they hear you confessing your sin to them and asking their forgiveness? Pointing them beyond you to the holy judge who has given his only son for their salvation. Dear church, as people observe you, do they see and learn truth about God? And third, do you speak the name of the Lord to those who don't know him yet. I mean, we aren't merely meant to look at this commandment and say, okay, this commandment, I must not use the name of the Lord in vain. Okay, I must not use the name of the Lord in vain. But actually, that's just half of what is being communicated here. We're actually meant to use the name of the Lord not in vain, to use it actively for his glory. So don't leave her just being like, Blah, blah, blah. I've been beaten down by this commandment. That's a good thing. Then turn to Christ and use your new life in Christ to promote the name of the Lord, to make it 
glorified in your home, in your community, and in the world. So are you prepared to speak the name of the Lord to those around you? Those at work, at school, in your family? Or are you ashamed of his name? Are you fearful of what speaking his name will mean for you? Have you neglected to take the name of the Lord to those who are far from him like you once were? Church, let's, let's finish by just thinking about how this commandment must help us and propel us on to proclaim with zeal the worth and the character and the might and the power and the majesty of the name of the Lord. Again, Phil Riken says this. He says, there is a clear connection between honoring God's name and spreading the gospel. When the name of Jesus Christ is lifted up and exalted, people come to him for salvation. Church, dear church, as you consider how to obey this commandment, remember the wonderful news that Jesus has obeyed it for you, that he has set you free from the penalty of this command, and he has set you free to grow in obedience to it in holiness. So let's exercise that freedom now, shall we? Let's come before our holy God and let's worship his name. Let's sing together, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Let's pray. Lord, we have just touched the surface of all this commandment it means for us. But we pray that we would take it to heart. We pray that you would help us faithfully hold your name high, bear it with joy and seriousness. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this church who might walk away from this passage feeling justified that they don't use profanity, that they don't speak your name that way. I pray, Lord, that you convict them of the deeper ways that they might be taking this commandment and disobeying it, and that you would throw them then on the cross of Christ for mercy, where they will find true joy, much more joy than ever, than ever thinking that they're pure and clean in themselves. And I do pray for other brothers and sisters who might take this command and apply it legalistically to their lives, making sure that every single thought and word and action about you is pure and holy, something that is good, but help them not to find their meaning and identity in perfectly obeying this law, but in being in the perfect lawkeeper, Jesus Christ. And then being freed to obey this, not in mere duty, but in joy and excitement, and hope. Lord, we come before you now to declare your holiness, to declare the holiness of your name. Hear it from lips that have been declared holy by the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.